A reading from the book of Moses, Genesis chapter 45, verses 1 through 15 in the New American Standard Bible. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? And his brother, but his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will also provide for you for there are five years of famine to come and you and your household and all that you have would be impoverished. Behold, your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. Now you must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt and all that you have seen. And you must hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. He kissed all his brothers and wept on them. And afterwards, his brothers talked with him. A reading from the book of Psalms, chapter 133 in the New American Standard Bible. Behold, how good it is, how, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to, get, to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down the upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, live life forever.
Isaiah. Well, oh, actually, let's go ahead and do this now. Um, Psalm chapter 67. Um, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth. Your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase, God. Our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. A reading from the book of Isaiah, chapter 56, verses 1 and 6 through 8, in the New American Standard Bible. Thus says the Lord, preserve justice and do righteousness for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness is to be my righteousness to be revealed also the foreigners who join themselves to the lord to minister to him and to love the name of the lord to be his servants everyone who keeps from profaning the sabbath and holds fast my covenant even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. The Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel declares, Yet others I will gather to them, those already gathered. A reading from the book of Psalms, chapter 119, verses 89 through 96 in the New American Standard Bible. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. You establish the earth and it stands. They stand this day according to your ordinances, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have revived me. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked wait for me to destroy me. I shall diligently consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. A reading from Paul's epistle to the Romans. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 2 and verses 29 through 32 in the New American Standard Bible. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknow. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. 
For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. A reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 15, verses 21 through 28 in the New American Standard Bible. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. This is the word of the Lord. So we're going to do a bunch of stuff tonight, hopefully, and uh, I'm hopefully going to finish in 27 minutes from now. I don't know what time they normally go to, but I'm going to try to stop by a quarter to eight, so if you guys are leading worship, just be ready by then. Um, so I'm not going to go in the order of the readings. Um, First of all, you, did you get an outline? Did all of you get a copy of this thing that says repentance, biblically defined and examined? Uh, either Deanna or Christiana cleaned that up a little bit about a year ago. And this has been something I've been working on. What, what are they laughing about? Last time I opened it a few months ago, it, it did pop up with one of your names had edited this file. Um, you know, because in the Dropbox it tells you that, you know, Deanna edited this file three years ago or what have you. We're up to, Deanna's are sometimes seven years now. Can you believe it? And Christiana's are usually a couple years. So, um, I've been working on this idea since about 1974, so that's 46 years, and it's grown in my heart and mind uh, gradually. So I just want to talk about a very important biblical word that's, that's very neglected in our day, repent. And uh, you're, it's almost that if you uh, emphasize the word repent, people would make jokes of, at you, you know, like fire and brimstone or whatever, but the, the first thing I want to tell you about repent uh, is about the word is there's three major uh, phases of the New Testament that God revealed himself in. The first phase is John the Baptist in, in his uh, preparing us for Christ, right? And so he's, he's sent by God to, to tell us that the Messiah is, is on the horizon and Repent, 
uh, bring forth fruit and keep them with your repentance, some things we're going to look at that he, it was part of his message. The second phase was, of course, Christ uh, going public with his ministry after his 40 days in the wilderness, which is covered at the beginning of Matthew 4 and, and Luke 4. The third phase is the apostles, uh, starting with Pentecost, beginning to preach the word in Jerusalem, and then gradually moving out to Samaria, uh, to the rest of Israel, and, and throughout the whole Roman Empire. And actually, by the time of 70 AD, uh, there were apostles that were as far as southern India, Thomas, right? And uh, the Andrew and, uh, and, and others made it to Norway and Sweden, where that Norway and Sweden are today. And there were churches planted through much of the known world by, by the first generation. That's very interesting. So much so that in uh, some of Paul's writings, he talks about the gospel that has gone out into all the world. He's basically saying, and he's really using a principle of the tithe or the first fruits. He's basically saying that the kingdom of God has advanced far enough that the first wave has gone far enough that it ensures that the whole world is going to hear the gospel. And that was accomplished in the lifetime of the apostles. So, uh, there, one common denominator between the message of John the Baptist the message of Jesus, and the message of the apostles, starting with Peter on the day of Pentecost, is all three of them, their first word they said in their, in their message was repent. All three of them. Now, you have to kind of put that together a little bit in terms of how I'm saying that. Um, you know, Peter says, actually starts with, these men are not drunk as you suppose. They, they've only been hanging out with some of the brothers of Grace Christian, but no. Um, ooh, no. I should have John Luke up here with... Or no. But uh, <laughs> um, you know, uh, Peter says these men are not drunk as you suppose. Great argument. It's too early in the morning. <laughs> I always thought, like, that's one of the things I'm going to ask when I get to heaven. I've got a whole list that I've been working on for years. And one of them's going to, like, couldn't you come up with something better than it's too early in the morning? Because <laughs> I, I remember working with some inner city guys that I remember taking this kid back to his parents because uh, they were so drunk they had to go to jail and, and one of them went to the hospital and whatever. But I remember taking him back to his parents the next morning, and the guy was already quite liquored up at noon. I felt bad about leaving the kid with him. But... Um, so, so I guess he didn't think it was too early in the morning. But, uh, but apparently Peter did. But when at the end of Peter's uh, testimony of, of Christ and of his rejection by both the Jewish Sanhedrin, the people of Israel, and the Romans, who's uh, over there? Who? Oh, um, you know, they're, they're convicted, and they say what? What must we do, right? I always say, never pray with somebody to receive Christ if deep in their heart and spirit they're not saying, what must I do? If they're not saying, I'll do anything, the Lord, Lord, 
Because really walking with God is a little bit like signing a contract that he's going to read to you later. <laughs> right? That's what, you're reading the Bible to find out just how he's going to kill you but, <laughs> and how he's going to resurrect you and, uh, and how you're going to die daily in order that the life of Christ may be manifest through you. Right? And it's kind of like you sign and you say, Lord, whatever thy will is, and then you begin to understand the contract. You can't really understand it until you start saying, I'll do whatever it says. But John the Baptist started his message with repent. Matthew 4, 17, uh, Jesus, after the wilderness, the first thing he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then after they say, what must we do? Peter says, repent. Let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, which refers to water baptism. That was the beginning of, trans, of a transition from John's foreshadowing water baptism, of, which was a, not true Christian baptism, but a foreshadowing thereof. And true Christian baptism started that day. And they baptized around 3,000 people that day. Some people believe it took from the 9 o'clock in the morning when the Spirit fell uh, till, till dark to baptize all the people. So, because they had 120 workers at the most. So, um, and then he says, and you shall receive the Holy Spirit for the promise, using the same language Jesus had used in Acts 1, referring to what they had just received, for the promise is for you. So he's saying it's for the entire audience. He says it's for your children, so that just kills the whole cessationist idea because in the Bible when it speaks of seed, Jeff Burks is the seed of Acts 2. Noel is the seed of Acts 2. Right? Sam Wante is the seed of Acts 2. Uh, when it's talking about your seed, it's talking about the descendants of, of Christ and the apostles for the next however many thousand years it is till Christ returns. So far, 2,000, almost. Just think, in 10 years, it'll be 2,000 years from the, from the uh, resurrection. So, um, then he says, it's for you, your children, so that means it's not locked to any generation. All right? It's for all who are far off. So that means it's not, not just the Roman Mediterranean world. It's for the whole world. And in case that's not clear enough, he then says, it's for as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. That's pretty clear. If God is still calling people to himself, then he's still baptizing people in the Holy Spirit, just like he did in Acts 2. Scripture clearly means that. And that's not, it's just a product of our natural minded post enlightenment uh, Western culture that there's any, even any disagreement about that. We have come to expect a Christianity that doesn't radically change lives and doesn't see the dead raised and the blind granted sight and the spiritually blind granted sight and the spiritually dead granted life. And it's no more miracle for, for a, a sinner to come to Christ than it is for someone to be risen from the dead. If you, if you understand it's more than a sinner's prayer, it's going from death 
to life. And I try to think sometimes about, you know, the, one of the temptations the Israelites face in the wilderness as they met hard times, and every Christian faces this process, where we are tempted to look back at, the, at Egypt, so to speak, with favorable lights. You know, so they're like, would that we were back in Egypt when we had leeks and onions. I don't know about you, but a diet of just leeks and onions wouldn't be, you know, like if I hung out with Jane today, if Jane would call me and say, I'm going to take you out for a lunch of leeks and onions, I'd be like, well, okay. <laughs> but I probably wouldn't be super thrilled about the lunch, just thrilled to hang out with Jane. But uh, <laughs> but uh, I... I would probably ask politely somehow, could we have more than leeks and onions? How about some of that manna stuff or something? But uh, so, um, the, so the, the bottom line is that repentance um, is way more foundational than we think. Now, you have the outline, so there's eight statements I make about repentance. I just want to hit a couple of them that we sometimes forget. Uh, boy, it's hard, to, it's hard to narrow it down a little bit. I was told I was going to teach today when I was too late to do anything about it, uh, except for send some outlines to, to Josiah. And uh, so uh, I want to go to number six first. We're not going to do them in order. This is something I forget in my Christian life. And I figure that the Bible is pretty clear that we ought, you know, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is the first scripture I ask anyone that I'm discipling to memorize. No temptation has overtaken you, but what is common to man. So the point is, what you're facing, Byron, Sindhu's facing, and Sam's facing. And we face very similar things. Now, sometimes we face them at different times. You're not struggling with old age as much as I am. <laughs> but, you, but believe me, by the grace of God, you will. <laughs> if, if the Lord uh, tarries and if uh, he doesn't have another purpose to call you home sooner, you'll, you, I hope that you don't do as bad in the hair department as I've done as I've aged, but <laughs> hope you have more hair. Maybe it'll be more like Logan's. It turns gray, but still has a full head of hair. That would be nice. I forget sometimes that, that repentance is a daily foundation, but it really, 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 really is important. I don't know how to tell you how important it is because all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned our, our own way, and that doesn't magically stop the day we pray to receive Christ. We have a tendency to go astray. We have a tendency to do things our way instead of God's way. We have a tendency to forget about him altogether. One of the reasons that daily spiritual, uh, daily is a big theme in the Bible. Jesus taught us the Lord's Prayer, give us this week our weekly bread. I don't think that's what he said. You know, let, let, me, have a, let me have a weekly dose of the, of the bread of God on, on Sunday mornings. I don't think so. Uh, we'd probably be a lot thinner. Uh, if we only ate on Sunday mornings. But uh, <laughs> believe me, I have my credentials in this department with me here. And believe me, this didn't come from just eating on Sunday mornings. <laughs> it, this was a lot of years of consistent discipline. Uh, <laughs> or, or lack thereof, per, perhaps. But it didn't happen overnight. 
You know, I can remember when I was uh, 25 and I got married, getting down from 180 pounds to 160 pounds for the wedding. <laughs> I would love to get down to 200 pounds for anybody's wedding now. <laughs> These things have a tendency to be creeping. As like Genesis 1, all the creeps. Um, it's very, very important to understand the Bible. You know, the manna came daily, except the day before the Sabbath. There was enough for two days then. There is daily, you know, the Genesis 1 tells us that God made times and seasons for his purpose. And there are some things that God made that, that is really important to do daily. And one is have a daily encounter with him. Don't get into the, the, a daily 15-minute devotional. As I always say, devotionettes make raisinettes. And the reason we're, that a lot of the fruit in, in the church today looks like raisins is because of the idea of, well, if you could only spend 10 minutes with God, you know what? In him, we live and move and have our being. Right? And uh, you really need to, to spend time with God Till you encounter the presence of the Holy Spirit. Till you hear God's word talking to you. You know, people get, get, psych themselves out of hearing God's word and knowing his presence when in fact they are hearing his presence and hearing his word. As you read scripture, it's the voice of God talking to you. It's a love letter from God. I've never known a teenager yet that passed notes in, in school that didn't read the notes. <laughs> no, we're not allowed to pass notes. I'm not going to read it. Especially if it's from someone of the opposite sex that they like. You know, uh, God's word is his love letter to us. And so the last statement about repentance is probably the most important one. That repentance is not just from, but most importantly toward seeking and loving God. We think of repentance as don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. But if it doesn't include the go hard after God, then it's not repentance. If it doesn't yield knowing the Lord. Um, I I'm, I'm, don't want to spend any more time on this, but repentance always brings forth fruit is another big important one. And it's radical. I wish I had time to preach that. Radical means roots. It, it has to be foundational. Um, but I want to get into some of the readings. So let's go to Psalm 133. This is my go-to psalm for single households, but it's really for all families and all households. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. I was talking to someone today about... Um, Sometimes our evangelical subculture has been so pietistic that we actually underestimate the importance of joy. But joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And, you know, there's an old joke that uh, fundamentalists live in the, in the constant fear that somewhere somebody's having a good time. And <laughs> but life is to be celebrated. Israel was to celebrate before the Lord certain festivals to remind them of the bad things God had done. They were a little bad for the Egyptians. 
but they were wonderful for the, the, the redeemed. And, you know, like having a great time is, uh, you know, that, you know, the Lord gave us a slogan for our campus ministry, enjoying God together. People forget to enjoy God. They look like they got baptized in lemon juice. And where does that happen when brothers live together in unity? Now, let me tell you something. You'll never find unity except on the other side of the cross. Like two people who are self-centered, two people who want their own way, two people who are stubborn will never find unity. Two people who die to self, I always say the call to die is on the more mature. The first person to die is usually the, the more mature person in Christ. At least in that situation they were, but often that's the pattern. And you're never going to find, you know, like, you, I, I love when you meet people and they, you know, people like to talk about what they do for a living and da-da-da. But I love when you get together and people are, you know, the Christian version is t- like the top this testimony game. And I was such a bad sinner and now I'm such a great Christian. And, you know, uh, you're going to find people on the other side of, of humility, You know, I uh, was helping a young man once that was having a trouble finding, uh, finding deep relationships in the body of Christ. And uh, I took him back to what worked for me in 1975, 76, even 74 a little bit. But, uh, you know, there, it was easy for me to be in this very on-fire fellowship and... Um, to maybe be a little dry a certain day and, and start thinking things like, who am I kidding? I'll never be one of these Christians. You know, I've been a drug dealer for the last seven years. I've, in the last seven years, I've had three or four days that I wasn't high. And those days I was drunk. So, no, I'm just, you know, I, I didn't get caught when I stole cars. And I remember talking to my pastor about, like, I know what 1 Corinthians 12 says, that if we're not the eye or not the ear, the ear can't say to the eye, I'm not part of the body. But the truth is, I just don't feel like I fit in, even though I was known for how zealous I was for reading the word and so forth. But the truth is, you know, I... You know, I had to spend the first summer, I was a Christian, just making money to pay back all the places I used to steal from because you have to make restitution when you first come to the Lord. And it took me an entire, you know, 90 days to to earn enough money to pay back all the places I stole from. Every dime of the paychecks went to that. Thankfully, my father was a good Christian and allowed me to do that. But so... This pastor said to me, forget about fitting in and just start to serve and meet practical needs. And for the first five years I was a Christian, I was the guy who mowed the church lawn, the pastor's lawn. I took out the trash at, three to, at two of the pastor's houses, at the church offices. I hung up all the posters. You name it, if it needed done, I did it. And uh, 
And what he said is, don't even evaluate whether you feel like you fit in until you've been a servant for a couple of years. And then he said, when you reevaluate in a couple of years, you're going to find you're totally involved in the body and you totally fit in, which was true. And the other thing that I always say is this, humble yourself. Like, go to the brother and say, you know, Liz House, I, I know you're a wonderful Christian sister, but I'm a little worried about what you, that, what you think of me. You know, I, I know I'm not as good a Christian as I could be, and I'm, I'm a little worried that you're, you know, kind of rejecting me in your heart or, or judging me in your heart or, uh, you know, because, I, you know, I, I have these feelings that I struggle with that I don't fit in. And I've only had that backfire me on now, on once or twice. Now, don't do that with an unbeliever. Because <laughs> they're probably going to say, yeah, I really do think you're a jerk. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but usually, you, usually in a Christian community, they're going to say, no, I really love you very much and I respect you very much. And then I'm going to feel better about what Liz House thinks of me because I humbled myself. Just using Liz House as a random example. But, but so many of us think, uh, struggle with that. Remember, when, when Adam and Eve sinned, they went from being naked and not ashamed to trying to hide from each other and from the Lord himself. And all of our feelings of I don't fit in and inadequacy and, and so forth is part of the spiritual battle that getting started with the Lord involves. And the best way out of it is not to confess a bunch of scriptures positively, but to say, Daniel, I need a little bit more reassurance. And I've had that even in, you know, I had that a lot in my early years, but I've had it in recent years sometimes. And sometimes it's been because I sense that a person's really important to our ministry. And for whatever reason, I do some spiritual battle with thinking they must think I'm an, because, you know, I, a lot of times I'll know they're differently gifted than me and wired, so I've, you're thinking, they must think I'm a total fruitcake or something, you know? And uh, sometimes I will actually tell them I need a little reassurance. Some of you uh, know about that firsthand. So, <clears throat> behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. That doesn't happen by accident, but it happens on the other side of the cross. It happens by service. It happens by humility. And the second example I gave is what, what humility really is. We sometimes misunderstand. Humility is when you really admit, I ain't all that. It's bad grammar, Sindhu, but <laughs> it's okay. I, I'm a pastor. I can, can use bad grammar. Gene will put a C minus on my paper and later, but... <laughs> And she goes, ain't, ain't a word, because ain't in the dictionary, because my mother said it ain't. <laughs> All right, so, it's like the precious oil, and I'm only going to get through Psalm 133, apparently. Uh, it's like the precious oil coming down upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down the edge of his robe. Why is that important? So we have this, uh, like if we anoint somebody with oil that's sick, uh, We'll get a little oil and we'll put a little on our finger and we'll put a dot on their head or something like we're Hindus or something. Uh, or sometimes we'll be much more Christian and make a little sign of the cross. But you know how Samuel anointed Saul and David and so forth? 
He poured the oil on his head, so much so that it ran down his beard, down his robes, and down to the edge of his robe, because guess what is just below the edge of your robe? Your feet and the ground. So it really meant the Holy Spirit covering all of you. Guess what? If I get up and give you a message that's 80% the work of Jesus Christ and his spirit in me over the years and 20% my flesh, it's going to be a pretty bad message. You know, we need the Holy Spirit to cover all of us. Secondly, after it hits the edge of your robes and your feet, guess where it goes then? To the ground that you're walking on. And that's symbolic of the fact that God has called us to take dominion everywhere the feet of our, the soles of our feet tread. Now, that's not just in a verse in Ephesians 6, that's not just in Romans 15. That starts in Genesis. And all through the Bible, when, when God told Abraham, you know, look, look out the four directions as far as your eye can see, every place that your feet tread, I've given it to you. And the, the original land of promise was symbolic of, the reason he had him look four directions is because that was just a foreshadowing of the true covenant of God, the new covenant, that he's given us dominion of the whole earth. And there's nothing less, the gospel is really an announcement and a proclamation, and it's an invitation to surrender. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. You can do that joyfully or we'll break them. <laughs> and all the earth will be filled with the glory of God. All the earth. The reason why wham and groups like that are important is because God always raises up parachurch ministries to do the things the church should be doing that it's not doing. And we're 2,000 years after the Great Commission, and there's lots of people that have never heard any demonstration of the gospel. You know, I was just in India in uh, late February and early March, as many of you know, and... Um, Sendu didn't go with me, but uh, next time maybe. Uh, th that country is uh, about 15% Muslim. Guess what? It's 3 to 4% Christian. This Sunday, uh, Deanna and Anvesh and myself and Stephen are, are going to hang out in the fellowship hall for until about 2 or 3 after church, and then we're driving to Washington, D.C. to spend time with Chris and Amanda Wu for a few days. We'll be back in time for the Wednesday word. We'll be actually back late Wednesday morning. We're going to drive all night on Tuesday night. But, uh, you know, Chris and Amanda Wu, if you know their parents, uh, Chris's parents, they're missionaries in Taiwan. They're church planners in Taiwan. They're not, you know, like I hate the word missionary, to be honest, because uh, biblically it's, a, it's about whether you're planting churches, not making decisions. Making disciples that form Christian communities is is not, nothing less is biblical. But, um, you know, Taiwan is about 3% Christian, if that. And, you know, we've been given the proclamation to, uh, that we've been given to, for over 2,000 years. I keep doing my math wrong. It'll be 2,000 years in 10 years exactly. 
And, uh, you know, lots of the world lives outside any effective demonstration of the gospel. There's no church in their area that's living the gospel message. Well, I don't know how I segued to that. Um, back to the, oh, because of the oil on his robes. Um, you know, God has, you know, I, uh, now this, I wouldn't do this because it wouldn't be kind, so it's more just a joke. But, you know, you, and you ask someone how they're doing and they say, I'm doing fine under the circumstances. I always say, like, what are you doing under the circumstances? The, the oil going down to the edge of his robe was because God's actually called you to walk above sin, above lawlessness. Uh, he's called you to be the most influential person in any room. Because Christ is in you. And there, if you read the Gospels, you'll find very few places that Christ didn't upset everybody. People didn't, like, you know, people go, well, people either love you or they hate you. And I'm like, I, you know, I wish because that's what, that's how they are with God. There's no, you know, well, I'm just okay with God. Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me, but there's no middle ground. And uh, when you're, you know, I think about this sometimes when I'm sharing the gospel in like a place like the checkout line in Kroger's or something. And I, you know that um, this person, this is, this might be the most important counter they encounter they've ever had or ever will have. And we are so timid to think like that. But Christ is in you. And if not you, who? No one else is coming. Does that make sense? And that's all about what the oil upon the beard. That's such an important verse. Um, lastly, on Psalm 133, then I'm going to quit. I, I really had a lot of things I wanted to say about a few of these other passages. Shoot. Um, but you can ask me about them in the fellowship hall later, I guess. Maybe. Um, the last line is, it's like the dew of Hermon coming out of the mountain of the For there the Lord commanded a blessing. Like we work so hard at trying to change from being depressed to excited, from being confused to clear, from being uh, troubled to, to really zipping along in life and, and, and affecting every situation for good. When the, there's a place where God's commanding a blessing. And it's pretty hard to resist the commands of God. I raised four kids, so I know about people not doing your commands. <laughs> I'm an expert. And uh, I pastored, uh, I forget how many churches, three or four. But uh, so I know that people don't do what you command. But then again, I'm just a guy. And the Lord himself, when he commands a blessing... Life forever, what is that? It's defined, scripture defines scripture. So does someone tell me what eternal life is in the scripture? Say it again, say it louder, Gene. That's John 17, 3, I think, right? Yeah, Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God. He was speaking to the Father. 
and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. You know, when you get around people enough to get to know them, you know who knows the Lord. You know them by their fruits. You know them by their lifestyle. And believe me, our single households and our married households are the number one evangelistic tool we have. People should see how the Gonder House sisters or the Red House sisters or the Campus Ministry House brothers live, and that should change their lives. I know it's late, but I'm actually going to share two testimonies about this because this is so important. I, I'm actually glad I spent all the time on this. Like, we cannot have families. We cannot have single households where this is not happening, where there's not so much humility and service uh, that, the, that we are fellowshipping on the other side of the cross. The other side of the tomb, out you know, that we've come, we've died, we're dead, buried, and resurrected, and and we're living in that power of that resurrection together. So many, when people tell me so and so is a really good Christian, I always say, who are they a really good Christian with? Because if you're not making it work in Christian community, it's bull. You can fill in the rest of that word. It's baloney. Let's say it more, more Christianese. It's a lie. And as I had to share with one guy one time, when the Bible says all men are liars, it means women too. <laughs> when I did have a guy once that thought all, all men were liars, but women weren't. <laughs> of course, he was on drugs. But, um, but he did get saved that night. So... <laughs> Uh, he, he did actually come to Christ in his underwear in the lobby of the dorm. <laughs> Why me, Lord? Uh, that actually is a real story, but I, I'll tell you the rest of it sometime. Some of you have heard it a million times. So this thing about where the Lord commands the blessing of life evermore, I, I want to give you two testimonies. One is from the campus ministry house in Bowling Green, and the other is from the, the brother's house that was directly across the street. And the one about the brother's house across the street, I'm the most amazed with and pleased. One of those brothers actually lives here in Dayton, and I still know him. Um, and um, it simply goes like this. That was the house... We had 32 people in eight units on one block next to the campus. And that was the house of the brothers who weren't as mature enough to live in the, in the leadership household. Those were all newer brothers in Christ that, it, that were, and for the most case, less than one year old in Christ. And in some cases, were coming out of some pretty wild, you know, just got out of jail, just, just got off being arrested for drugs or stealing cars and things, you know. So there, were, there were a couple guys that their parents had sent them to Bowling Green because their older brothers and sisters were uh, mature members of the church, and their parents had given up on I don't know what to do with them. And they had, and they had both, both those guys had come to Christ, and they were living in this household, 
And a friend of mine named Louis Sabera, who's still alive and still lives in Tampa, Florida, was sharing with a guy that you all know named Eric Meyer. And Eric was a pagan. Good pagan. <laughs> Whatever that means. But uh, he, Eric was kind of a wild guy, to be honest. Uh, so I'm told. I actually met him just after this story happened. But um, they had him over for dinner. And they got in a big conflict about the dinner with their guest there. And Eric was so impressed with how they handled that conflict and worked through it and how mature the process was that he contrasted that to all the wild party guys that he knew because he was quite popular and quite the partier. He was actually in one of my wife's classes at the time, an economics class. And, and he was the number one heckler and class clown troublemaker in the class by far. And um, Eric received Christ that week because he actually, like, re, like he said, the way they resolved that conflict, the, the, what they have is, is definitely real. That was, the mo that was apologetics 101 by how a household lived. That was more convincing than any apologetics book to Eric. He was very popular and had been popular all through high school. You know, he's got a very warm, magnetic personality. And he had never seen, he, all the guys he ever knew when they got a conflict, it was a flesh fest. Think, screaming, yelling, swearing, breaking things, throwing things somebody walking out and slamming the door. And these guys just worked through it in a very mature, biblical way. And he received Christ because of it. And today, he's one of the most fruitful men I've ever known. The other one was a guy named Mike McDermott, who, uh, who uh, Deanna knows his son. You probably know Mike and Betsy, too. At least some, right? Does anybody else know Mike McDermott? Do you, do you know, know him? Uh, he, he still works at 2J Supply. He works for Larry Trimbach. But Mike was a pe good pagan, Cleveland Browns fan. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, that means you've got hope in, in hopeless circumstances. Uh, no, but, uh, um, but we had Mike to dinner at the campus ministry house. And I had no way of knowing this. Uh, I forget, I wasn't one of the primary guys sharing with him. So one of the other guys in the house had started witnessing to him and Mike later told me his number one objection to becoming a Christian is he thought Christianity was going to be super boring and Christians never had any fun and they were all baptized in lemon juice and vinegar that kind of idea and and it was good like he dreaded how 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 unfun it was going to be to be in a Christian because Mike's kind of lively fun loving kind of guy likes music etc sports um, and it all started with, I was sitting at the end of the table and I, uh, there was a bowl of nuts on the table and I grabbed a nut and I threw it into a glass that was on the table to see if I could make a basket and it went in. Before long, we were all throwing nuts starting in the basket. Then after that, we, we decided to up it a notch. So we, we got uh, a jar funnel, not, not a funnel with a small opening, but a bigger opening at the bottom. And it had like a flat thing. So we wedged it in the top of the closet door. And that became the basket. And the nuts were the ba basketball. 
and we played full contact funnel nutball. <laughs> and I mean, the, we made up a rule. Uh, after a while, when it was getting a little out of hand, we said, "Okay, no biting." Uh, you know, <laughs> but you know, like, and I think we eventually came around to no punching. But uh, but pretty much anything was go- like, you know, like it was full tackle, and you know, it wasn't the kind of thing they do at sister's household. Let's just say. <laughs> Uh, now, this, I, I know I'm using a lot of time to take this story, but you need to understand something. After we were exhausted from playing funnel nutball for an hour or two or whatever single nutty people do, uh, of course, you know, we were all in, like, grad school, or I think we might even had one or two undergraduates in the house, but the, most of the guys were working on master's degrees. Uh, a couple of them were finished with master's degrees, but still single. And, you know, they were the five leading guys in our, in our campus ministry. And, and uh, Michael asked us to pray with him to receive Christ after funnel nutball because his, I, di- I didn't know this. That wasn't why I played funnel nutball. I played funnel nutball because I'm a little funnel nutty myself. But, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I was always inventing some game out of whatever was at hand. Uh, and, uh, and if it was full contact, that was all the better when you're a single young guy. And uh, so, you know, there were a few holes in the doors and stuff, but I owned the house, so it was okay. There was no landlord except me. So... Um, Mike prayed to receive Christ, and he shared with us that his one objection to becoming a Christian is he thought it was going to be really boring and, and like a total drag to be a Christian. And Mike became the most anointed, most gifted worship leader we ever produced in any of our, the churches that we started. And the, re, the reason I brought him to Dayton was to, to, uh, to be a, because we needed a better worship leader. And so, um, behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. I want to say that we totally underestimate that. I so much hear all the time about the level of Christian community we have from people who are observing us. You know, Judy Weller told me that, I've told you that story a bunch of times, you know. I was having a Bible study with Adam Furlow's brother, Nathan, in Frisch's, and she was in the booth next, next to us, and she stayed an extra hour and a half just to listen to the Bible study. But we didn't know she was listening. And when we finished and we were about to leave, she introduced herself to us, and I gave her a card. And usually, I'm, I, 99.973% of the time, when, that, when I give somebody a card like that, we never hear from them again. And she showed up at church, and she's still a member of the church. But she's still a member of the church because the first Sunday she was here, she saw John Luke, Sidney, Sam, Stephen uh, taking care of the, the children. Uh, like, you know, when a, when a, uh, like, you know, when, when a child's running around and all the parents are together, she saw that all, even the single guys helped with kind of take, keeping an eye on this children and making sure they were safe. And she said she's never seen that anywhere in any Christian body before. She's been a Christian a long time. 
And in fact, uh, she's noticed, especially in youth groups, and that whole mentality of a separate youth group, we'll never have a youth group. I'm the youth group. But, <laughs> you know, you, you graduate from youth group when you're 87. So if you're 88, you can't come to youth group anymore. But you can still come to everything else, so it's okay. But, um, you know... Um, she basically said she, she'd noticed how into themselves most Christian teens were and end up being fun with their peers and all that. And our, like all of our single guys uh, were helping the parents with keeping an eye on the little kids when they ran here and there and so forth. And you know we particularly have uh, you know guys like John Luke and Sidney and others that are really, really good with kids. And uh, that, that is why she stayed. She's made that very clear to me. She stayed because behold how ple- good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity. By this all men will know that you're true disciples if you have love for one another. 